Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We're grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Good morning, everyone. Beautiful day. As per usual, the, the weather has been so nice these days. It makes me like so sad because the weather is nice, but we can't even meet. So it's so sad. Yeah, uh, it's really good to see everybody here today. Um, I hope you guys have been, I know a bunch of you guys have started school. I feel like the last batch of everyone, actually there might be a couple more middle school students um, who are starting school this next week. Um, but uh, it's really wonderful to see you guys all here today. And it's really great to have you guys all join in. Um, we are, I feel like it was yesterday when I said that it was uh, September was beginning, but now uh, September is ending. It's September 20th, and I am just counting every week. Um, I'm honestly just counting every single week that um, I was here. Um, so I, that we were here in quarantine. So I'm just sorry. Just one second, Amy. Yeah, so it's really wonderful to see you guys here. Um, I, it's, I'm just counting every week. That's what, sorry, I was, something popped up. I was, I'm just counting every week, uh, that we're on quarantine and, um, I feel like it's just never ending. So I hope that we can meet together in person. I'm, uh, just to be transparent with you guys, our church is currently for the fall not meeting in person overall, um, but I'm working on a way that we can at least possibly meet maybe once for an outdoor service, but don't count on it. Um, please be praying with me for it. Uh, I think our whole ministry really needs that. So, so yeah, so that's what's uh, being worked on right now. Um, but one thing that doesn't change week in, week out, is our sermon series. We have been going through Acts since April and the seasons have changed and the world has flipped upside down. Some part of America is literally burning, but we are still in Acts. And so you guys can open up your Bibles with me. Uh, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Verses 7 through 12. Acts is right after the book of John, right before the book of Romans. Acts um, chapter 20. I'm reading from the ESV, but because the author of this book is a doctor and his writing is a little bit difficult, if you guys wanted to read from the NIV or the NRSV, I think that's perfectly fine. So Acts chapter 7, verse, Acts chapter 12, verse 7 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, before I read, um, I know that 
we are not here to stand together right now, but if we can just all read um, with the due reverence that God's word deserves. Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. I'll just start reading. This is the word of the Lord. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and there he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you just join me as we pray together? God, we thank you for your holy and perfect word. We thank you, God, that you love your people. And we thank you, God, that you are with your people today. Father, Lord, as we talk about the unexpected grace of God for every single person, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us today. Holy Spirit, um, you are in our midst And there are forces, there might be forces in the heart of every single person who's listening today that are fighting against uh, the gospel and against the the gospel of grace that we are about to hear. Lord, I pray that you would block our ears from any distraction, that you would protect our souls from anything other than experiencing and encountering you, God. That your grace for us, whether we are in your house or outside your house or in the yard, having not stepped in yet into the fold of the believers. I pray, God, that you would help us to be able to see how your love meets us exactly where we're at. So hide me behind your cross, God, that only you are magnified and only you are glorified. We give you glory and honor this morning. We love you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today we are going to be talking about the unexpected grace of God. So the sermon title for today is God's Unexpected Grace. God's unexpected grace. And the main idea is that God's grace is for all the flock and all different ways. God's grace is for all the flock in all different ways. All right. So the first thing we're going to talk, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, actually, before I jump right in, I want to ask you guys a question. If God's love and God's church were a house, where do you think you are spatially? Are you at the doorstep ringing the doorbell? Are you on your way? Are you on the path to the house? Maybe you've passed the fence, but you're not in the house yet. Are you right in the middle of the house? Are you peeing in the bathroom? Do you have a bedroom there? Um, where are you spatially in the house of God? Or where do you believe that you are spatially in the house of God? 
You can reflect on that with me as, as we go through today's passage. I want to first talk about the context. So if you guys remember last week, last week we were able to talk about the chaos of half gospels, right? And if last week we were talking about how to discern the difference between the gospel and half gospels, today we are going to be talking, we're going to be shifting and talking about the unexpected grace of God in the house of God for all people who are in and around that house, whether or not you feel like you're in the house or outside the house. So the circumstances of Acts chapter 20, I cannot believe we are in Acts chapter 20, but the context of of the passage, a context of the chapter, specifically in the first six verses, is that Paul is in team ministry and he's preaching in different places. What's interesting about the context of this passage is that Paul, when in the verses that we have just read today, where we encounter Paul in, I believe it's Troas, um, Paul is not supposed to be there. So the context is, is that Paul was in Greece preaching the gospel for three months until the Jews plotted to kill him. He was originally supposed to set sail in a boat for Syria, but hearing that the Jews were about to kill him, he actually had to switch course and went on land to Macedonia. So he wasn't, he was, he wasn't, it wasn't his intention. It wasn't his intention, but hearing that the Jews were persecuting him and that the Jews were plotting to kill him and ambush him, he actually had to switch direction last minute and decided to go by foot through Macedonia. There were different people with him. There were different people meeting him. And we see more of the author here using the word we because the author, Luke, is now involved, intimately involved in in the accounts that in the accounts that he is explaining to us, now Luke is involved. See, uh, Luke, the guy who wrote Luke and the guy who wrote Acts is actually, he is one of the disciples of Paul. He was not necessarily a disciple of, he was not necessarily a disciple of Jesus in the sense that Luke did not actually encounter Jesus face to face, but came to Christ and um, accumulated all the accounts of the Gospels and then wrote the book of Acts about the early church. And so now Luke is involved. Luke is meeting Paul at a particular place and, and they all end up in this little town called Troas. Now we can, I don't know if y'all, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to like dwell here for very long, but I want you all to think about the context in and of itself, because the context in and of itself is literally, I would say it is so relatable because if this is not 2020, (laughs) if 2020 is not a literal change in direction and travel because of an ambush, I don't know what 2020 could be. You know, I didn't, uh, I was on Instagram this morning and Lee Min, Min Jin Lee, the girl, not the girl, she's not a girl, she's a wonderful woman um, who wrote the books Pachinko and Free Food for Millionaires. Sorry, the book is right there. Free Food for Millionaires. Um, she actually posted a picture of young Ruth Bader Ginsburg and was like saying, I, I have not expected that I would ex- experience this much grief in six months. And I think that is literally, literally 2020 in a sentence. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, when God, when when life takes a little skirt, skirt, and you thought you was gonna be on a boat to Syria, but you end up walking every day through Macedonia. When 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 it says in Scripture that Paul is going to walk, there were no there are no horses involved. There is no car involved. Man's is literally walking miles and miles for weeks and weeks. And so what would have been a boat ride ends up being <laughs> walking for weeks and weeks. Y'all have to understand, he walked hundreds of miles through Asia Minor, um, which is pretty crazy, right? And so Paul is in a situation where God skirts, skirts his plan. And I don't, I don't mean to put it like that, but I think that's really, really important for us to understand because what's about to happen is very interesting. And um, yeah, so this, the way that Paul and his disciples and the people that he's rendezvousing with, the way that they end up in Troas is because God skirts, skirts on them or life skirts, skirts on them and God allows it, ordains it and um, obviously for Paul, he's come to peace with it. But for some of us, we might not be coming to peace with how God has interrupted our lives and so many things have changed in 2020. I feel like that is a conversation in and of itself for another time. But I imagine that Paul, even though he has come to peace with it, has some level of grief. Um, especially when you consider the fact that people are plotting to end his life. And that he's running for his life. Uh, there's a great deal of tension there. A uh, great deal of lack of safety. Walking doesn't make it any easier. It's actually slower and you're more susceptible to harm. Uh, more susceptible to ambush. At least in water, who's going to... You know what I mean? At least when you're safely in the water, who's going to... It's, it's a lot harder for somebody to ambush you in that sense. Um, but yeah, so... I imagine that Paul was going through a great deal of grief here. And I think that the context in and of itself of where this Paul meets us or where we encounter Paul's life is, is very important. So that's the context. And so him and his disciples, they get to this place called Troas and they stay for seven days. And on the last night, on the last night, which ends up being the first night of the week, they hold a worship service. Now, I, I wanna, I wanna just kind of zoom in on that a little bit, and that's that. That happens in verse seven through eight. So I'm just gonna read it one more time for us. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Now. There is a last night worship service that happens here. And all, and I want to note a couple of things. The first thing I want to note is that all the believers gathered on the first day of the week. And it seems like when the believers gather for worship, it's in the evening. This is pretty important. All the believers gather on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is when? Sunday. All right. Um, most likely, and this is obviously contrary to Jewish tradition. At this point, Christianity is an early religion, and Saturday is usually the Sabbath. But it's Saturday night uh, when God's people start to worship together. 
They worship in the evening. What's really interesting about this is that the significance of them worshiping in the evening as opposed to us worshiping in the afternoon is actually that um, they were accounting for people's work days. Uh, it had to be the evening because during the morning to afternoon, most working class people were too busy working and they, and they couldn't make it. And that's why worship service was happening in the evening, which means that people came back after taxing work days, grueling work grinds to make it to Sunday service or to this corporate worship. So all the believers, they gather on the first night the night of the first day, because at the time Jews, um, the custom, not even the Jews only, but the custom at the time was when the sun set, that was the beginning of the day. Um, and so people gather in the evening time, the community comes together. And this is really what's interesting. And I, I, I'm always challenged by this a little bit. Uh, the community comes together to break bread and have a meal together where Jesus is remembered. So the way that people worship God here is that it's not necessarily like us where there's worship and service and then talking afterwards or whatnot, or even when we were in person, it actually, instead of looking kind of like a Sunday service, it worship for them looked more like maybe an SNG where people came together and the first thing they did was eat. And then usually afterwards there were a time of worship and preaching. And so, and, and, and this meal wasn't just a regular meal. They broke bread together. The significance of that is, is that there was community and the idea of breaking bread in and of itself, that language is in remembrance of the Last Supper, which means that they were having communion in the midst of their meal. Their meal was communion. You know how we like take a little piece of bread and we dip it in the grape juice and we eat it once a month for communion? For them, communion was a meal. And Jesus was remembered in the beginning of the meal and at the end. Um, and so they gathered together to do what? To eat. To eat and to share life together. And then it's followed by the teaching of Paul. Uh, another important thing to note is that Paul and the believers are actually worshiping on the third floor. Uh, if y'all if can't tell, this is happening in the ancient times. And so the fact that there is a third floor is a big deal about the house. It says a lot about the owner. And so the person who was hosting it was probably rich. This was probably less like a house or more like a villa, especially in the in, if you compare it to the other houses of that time. And believers were all gathering, not just to hear Paul teaching, but to break bread together. Um, I just want to stress the importance of this. Uh, I think this in and of itself is a clue to all of us. A lot of us might be having a really hard time worshiping on Sundays on Zoom. And I don't blame you. I have a hard time preaching to cameras. Um, it's a strange thing to get adjusted to. And um, really, it's, it's really difficult um, and tiring. It puts a, a giant damper on Sunday service. And I, I really relate to what you're wrestling with. Um, but what was really important to the spiritual life of the believers Yes, instruction was important. That's why Paul does instruct. Uh, this time of being spiritually fed is very important. But the church is kind of like a table. Like uh, Pastor Choi said this to me last year, and it really revolutionized the way I see church. 
ministry and and the church is kind of like a table with food and you come and you eat and you eat that you eat the vegetables you eat the parts that you don't like you you have a balanced diet you might not want your collard greens you might not want your kale and you might not want your string beans but it comes with the bogey and so you eat it right it comes with your protein there's probably some sweet stuff and you like to it's, it's good to have like carbs and, and protein and and fiber in this and like balanced diet right um and that's kind of what ministry is like so as much as we have been attending Zoom services together. If we're not at least trying or attempting to engage in fellowship with one another in this time, it's going to be really hard for you to sustain faith. Um, it is a, I say this week in, week out, but American Christianity and the the notion that you have to make it on your own to believe in, believe in God is a lie. Faith is community. Faith happens in community, okay? Uh, God has specifically integrated a communal model into our faith because that's what we need. We are communal beings, okay? And so try to make sure that you are breaking bread with somebody and understand the significance of fellowship. And it's not just, it's to be, there's a distinction to be made between just eating together and fellowship because just, it's not, they're not just having a meal together, they're breaking bread. They're acknowledging the presence of Jesus. They're coming together for that purpose. And that meal in and of itself becomes worship. So just hanging out and not talking about Jesus is not fellowship. Shopping is not fellowship. Getting boba together is not necessarily fellowship. If there's no mention of Christ, and if you can have that complete gathering with, even if y'all were not Christian, that's not fellowship. Basketball, gaming is not fellowship if it can happen completely out of a Christian context. And so some of you guys might be thinking, well, I see and I communicate with believers all the time, and yet I'm struggling. My question to you would then be, are you engaging in fellowship? Um, fellowship is very important to your walk. Don't, don't skimp on it. So yeah. Here we see a very good example of fellowship. People are having a meal together. They're sharing life together. And then Paul is teaching. And this teaching goes on a little late. Y'all can relate to that. I know I preach a little long. So, yeah. So this <laughs> this worship service goes on a little late. And they're like, whoop, the sun is going to set. So they turn on all the lamps in the house. Because they're like, yeah, Paul's going to go on forever. Right? And so... Uh, the lamps, they're turned on, it's in the night, and there's fellowship, and people have eaten at this point, and Paul begins to teach. Right? You might ask, why did it last into the night? I, I can barely sit through Sunday service, and I don't blame you, and also apologize. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I try. I really do. Holy Spirit. If, if you want the service to be shorter, then pray. Um, so, <laughs> what, why does it last into the night? It is so hard. It is so hard to sit through everything. And to that, I say the mark of the early church was that as much as they loved God, they also loved being together. Of course, they loved God 
first and foremost, the grace of God over all of our lives. The fact that we have gone from slaves to sons. The fact that Jesus has died for us to be reconciled to the Father and to be in a family like the one we have. It is such a blessing. And yes, they love God, but as much as they love God, they love being together. And so there is an organic desire here. Um, to be in the presence of other witnesses, to be, and not just in the presence of other witnesses, but to be actively communicating and sharing, um, not just being vulnerable for the sake of being vulnerable, but sharing in the love and grace of God. Even if it's not necessarily spilling your guts to every single person in the church, there was meaningful, fulfilling conversation happening, um, like soul food, you know? That's what that's what fellowship was. It wasn't just it wasn't just bread. You know? There was more to this time than just bread and even teaching. And so what does it mean to hunger to be in community together? And that's a question I would want to challenge you with. But that's not just the point of today's passage. Yes, this is the circumstances that worship happens. But if you notice, today's passage is about a very interesting young man. It's a man named Eutychus. What do we know about Eutychus from this passage? If you look at the original language, the first thing you learn is that he is young. And the definition of young, it it should be noted that he's not a teenager, which means that he is from the ages of 18 to 30. Some of y'all might be younger than that. Some of y'all might be on the cusp of that. And some of y'all might be in that category. If you are in this category, I would say that you should listen up. All right. This boy, his name is Eutychus. All right. And he is between the ages of 18 and 30. Most likely if he's at that age, he's either an apprenticeship or he's in the middle of work. So he's probably had work all day. Right. And this man falls asleep in the middle of sermon. (laughs) If y'all relate to that... Like I said, I don't blame you and I apologize. Uh, I, I, I have no right to judge you because I remember how I would, uh, like, I would always be like overzealous to hear a sermon and then bob my head. So my whole church would always laugh at me. I'd be like, in the middle of a retreat, I would always be like, oh my god, I'm gonna sit in the first row. And then in the first row, I'd be like, <laughs> And so all throughout retreat, whenever people would see me, my upas and my aunties would be like, Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. And I would always be really embarrassed. So I don't blame you. Um, But what's really interesting, more so than the fact that he does something extremely relatable and falls asleep, um, what's really interesting about Eutychus is the circumstances that leads him to fall asleep. See, Eutychus was young, which means that he has more fire in him than most of the church. And y'all... We are, we are second generation, most of us are second generation people of color, right? That come from immigrant families. And I think it's pretty safe to say that our bodies are the healthiest. (laughs) Um, when it comes to age range, 18 to 30, that's prime time, right? But at the same time, I think it's, easiest for us to become the most weary in sermon. Like, I, I I always get shocked. I'm like, dragging my feet back when we used to meet in person. 
um, I would drag my feet out of worship service to um, go to the kitchen and I would just see like like these like male appa chipsanims that's um dad dad like middle aged deacons like they would just be like lifting things and like carrying things I'd be so shocked at their strength like oh my god like you, you, ha- your hair is great, but you are so much. You have so much. You have so much energy that I, I can't relate to. Um, and this boy was young, and he was young, and and that means that he was probably younger than most of the people that were there. But he, he, after a day of work, he was weary. Eutychus was weary. He had shown up. Most likely, if he's at, he's there at that age, he's not probably there alone. There's probably either a friend or a family member that's with him. Um, and he's there, and he's, they're eager to hear the word of God, right? Uh, there as, as a younger person that is also being taken care of by the community. But he starts falling asleep because life is tiring. And the grind sucks, right? Um... So he starts just, he's just weary after a whole day of work. And unlike the rest of everybody else who's listening attentively, he starts to fall asleep. One thing to note about the language of this, it says that he sank into deep sleep. We, we, we tend to read this and think, oh, it's just Luke being a little bit descriptive. But the actual verb in and of itself in the original language actually shows that even though Luke was falling asleep, Luke was sinking into deep sleep. The, the connotation there that Luke is making is that it was not just Eutychus's weariness that was making him fall asleep. There was a force that was stronger than his will that pulled him down into deep slumber. It's not just me trying my best to keep my eyeballs open while my professor is looking straight at me, but I cannot help myself from falling. It's not just that. Like that, I know, I know. I know that feels like a force that is stronger than your will, that is sinking you deep into slumber. I get it, but that's not necessarily what Luke is aiming to explain. He's actually talking about something that's spiritual. But what we see here is a regular occurrence. Luke is making a theological statement about Eutychus's condition of spiritual slumber. A lot of us, when we are weary with the world, when we are weary with our work, when we are weary, I don't know, some of y'all are in college, when you are weary with your course load, some of y'all are working, when you are weary with your grind, some of y'all are in high school trying to make it, and middle school trying to make it to high school, and it can get weary amidst all the cramming, amidst all the homework, amidst all the parents nagging. You might feel really weary about your future, about quarantine, about Zoom, about this whole new normal. But when you feel like you are entering into a state of spiritual slumber. Do not, do not be fooled by the elementary thought that you are the only agent of your spiritual slumber. We live in a physical and spiritual world. Our souls are spiritual within us. We're like frogs, okay? We exist on land and in sea. 
so to speak. And so all around us, while our bodies are engaging with the elements of matter, our souls are existing in a realm. And in that realm, there are good things and bad things. There are things that are of God, not good things and bad things, not to separate that into that dichotomy, but things that are of God and things that are not of God in that realm. Because we are sinners saved by grace. So we are interacting in a contaminated spiritual, in, in, a, in a contaminated, I would say, maybe sphere of the spiritual realm and it is one thing to fall asleep in body but it is another thing to fall spiritually asleep and most likely your soul is not the only part of that equation so Luke makes a very interesting theological presupposition about the condition of Eutychus at this point. A young man who is thrust into work, who is there, not just for himself, but a part of his community, but that is sinking into deep sleep after weariness sets in. It shows even that maybe weariness, maybe when the world gets burdensome, we become spiritually vulnerable. And I don't want to get too far into that. I don't want to get too far into that. But I do want to point you to the fact that Jesus says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And when we allow the burden of the world, when we have a hard time, and I I, I am one of y'all in that sense, because I'm a normal 25-year-old human being and I am right there with you. When we let the world fall heavy on our shoulders to the point where we are wearied by it. And we are not necessarily applying our identity as children of God and applying the reality of who God is into our burden. We might be more spiritually susceptible to slumber than other people. And that's not because you are more sick. It's not because you are more sinful. It's about whether or not the reality of the gospel is setting in in your life faster than the weariness of this world. Or more than the weariness of this world. Um, and we see that Eutychus in his tiredness and his weariness, he is susceptible and he sinks into deep sleep. Our work and our lives distract us. But how much of it is just us? Do not give the devil a foothold in your ignorance. That's why when people talk about renewal, it's about awakening. It's about rising. So keep thinking about that. That is the condition of Eutychus. But the interesting thing about this condition is that it gets even worse. He falls so sound asleep that he falls from the third floor and dies. This young man who falls asleep in the middle of the sermon. I mean, I have never gotten to the point, like, I'm not proud. I'm kind of proud because I would, but I have not fallen asleep in the middle of a sermon to the point where I have fallen off the chair. I will say I almost fell backward once, but I have not fallen off the chair. Um, Eutychus seems to have slumped down 
to the point where he has fallen off the third floor. He's fallen off the third floor. I believe that there is a, that this is vivid imagery to be made about the dangers of our own lives and about maybe the state that many of us might feel like we're in. Maybe we were wearied by the world. We were wearied by the weight of temptation, wearied by the weight of burden and uncertainty, wearied by the weight of obligation and responsibility, wearied by our work, by our world, that we slowly fell into slumber, sinking deeper and deeper until we fell off. We fell off the wagon, off the third story. Maybe some of us feel like we have fallen too far, that we were dragged into a state of slumber and that in our slumber we fell off and died spiritually. But that is the condition that Eutychus finds himself in. He falls asleep in the middle of instruction about the word of God. And it goes so far. He falls so deeply asleep that he falls off. And his body was picked up dead. And at that point, Paul runs down three stories and throws his arm around him. He puts his body on top of the lifeless body and he says, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Paul runs down and he throws his arms around him and then he urges the body of Christ not to be alarmed for life is in him. We see this. We see this resuscitation of Paul. It's not CPR. This resuscitation that happens when Paul throws himself around him. And there are a couple things to note about this resuscitation. The first thing to note is that this resuscitation is prophetic. And that life is shared in this exchange. That now this has been done before, not 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 hugging. I'm not sure actually. I didn't read all the instances that you'll it in which this instance points to in the Old Testament. But there are instances, for example, in First Kings and Second Kings with Elijah, um, where prophets resuscitate people. Um, and this marks Paul's status as a prophet. Um, but it also shows something really interesting in the fact that in Paul's exchange and encounter to pick up Eutychus, to throw his arms around Eutychus. Life is exchanged. In Eutychus's lifeless body, Paul throws himself on top and throws his arms around, puts his arms around him, which is basically a very immersive hug. Life is exchanged. This young man that falls asleep and falls too far While it might feel like his lifeless body goes unnoticed, the very person who was instructing runs down and embraces him and life 
there is exchange. The second thing to note about this resuscitation is that it is communal. There are two agents here. The person who's died as a, as a result of his slumber. The person who is reviving him as a vehicle. It's not Paul. It's not the power of Paul. We talked about that last week. It is not the power of Paul as a, as a, as a, as a person, but it is this Holy Spirit using Paul as an instrument. The power of God is not an instrument that we use to get what we want, but it is us that is the instrument for the will and the might of God. And so as this instrument of God runs down and shares life, and life is exchanged in a miraculous way, Paul addresses the third party, everyone who is worried about him, everyone who identifies as his people, which is his church. And so the first thing that Paul says is, is not even just talking to Eutychus, but he talks and addresses the church and says, do not be alarmed. There is life in him. So we see here, number one, this man who falls as a result of his own slumber is not vilified. He is not point a finger at it's, it's if you consider Jewish culture it's easy to think oh this is a result of his own action but instead the 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 leader the pastor of that congregation who's enacting shepherding who's engaging in shepherding runs down embraces him life is exchanged and the whole church is huddled around this board This boy was not abandoned. He was not on, he did not go unnoticed, but was surrounded in this miracle. And what happens after this miracle? What's always, what's always really interesting about a miracle is what, not necessarily the, even just a miracle in and of itself, but what happens after. I've always found that the miracle, when, when something crazy happens, like for example, well, if something crazy happens, whatever, however people react to that crazy situation usually is telling of the, the state of their heart. Like for example, in 2020, the world flips upside down. A beloved brother in the body of Christ, George Floyd, passes away. What ends up happening is this huge worldwide phenomenon of the revival of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it is revealed, like this quarantine, this global pandemic, this crisis has revealed so much about the state of man in this world. Similarly, it's always really telling what happens afterwards when it comes to a crazy supernatural or just really impactful situation. And what is more impactful than the resuscitation of life? Um, through a spiritual miracle. So, yeah, so it's really interesting. And, and and so I think it's important for us to observe what happens right afterwards. So what happens? The Red Sea parts, they start singing up and down. The song of, the song of Moses. Is there a feast? That's held for the boy? No. They go back upstairs, they continue with their and they eat together again. All night. 
talk until dawn. And then the church takes the boy home a lot and was greatly comforted. So the boy and the rest of the body goes back upstairs with Paul. They continue to engage in the fellowship that they were engaging with before. Not necessarily as though nothing happened, but just continuing on with what they do best as the body of Christ. With this now newly minted life. Until dawn. It's a long time, y'all. That is 12 hours. This worship service began at sunset and they talked until dawn. Y'all, we do not have Zoom for 12 hours, but that is what happened in this worship service. It was 12 hours. 12. 12. 12. You know? God forbid if I lead a 12-hour service, but that's what happened here. Um, and they eat and they talk, and then they take the boy home alive and was greatly comforted. What's really important about this comfort, Paul tells the believers, don't be alarmed. In a miracle, it's important that people get shocked. Often people get shocked by a supernatural miracle throughout scripture to the point where they believe. But in this situation, the community of believers were not astounded, but they were comforted. What do you think they were comforted by? The miracle? The boy? Paul? It's most likely that they were comforted by the, by the presence of God. So it wasn't that they were idolizing the miracle. It wasn't that they weren't able to get over the shock of what the miracle happened. They were able to see the glory of God and they were greatly comforted. For indeed, God is with us. And while the world leads to weariness and sucks the life out of you and the end product of life on earth is death, in Christ, we are given new life. We, have, we are given new relationship with him and we are given one another. And so in this miracle, they were comforted. Jando, I, I want to address something and, and, and I want to, I want to address something that you guys might be thinking, Jando, like, how do you know there wasn't already life in him? It's a valid point, you know? Maybe Paul wasn't necessarily saying something that was prescriptive, um, explaining something that was in action, but maybe he was describing the fact that the boy actually still had life in him. If you look at the original text, there's no reason to uh, interpret it that way. It's clear that the reason why Paul explains it calmly to the believers not to be alarmed is Paul is implying his active agency in that life in him. And so it's not that the miracle was that the boy fell off um, and was survived and was and was able to survive. The miracle wasn't necessarily that. But the assumption in the language is that the point of the miracle is when Paul embraced the body. And that's also really interesting to think about. That the point of the miracle 
wasn't when the boy was alone. See, in Scripture, in the New Testament, to my knowledge, I could be wrong. The only instance where somebody is dead and comes to life on their own is Christ. Lazarus, Tabitha, this boy, they're usually in the presences of other witnesses. And somebody in the midst, anointed by God, is used as a vehicle of God's love and power to resuscitate somebody. It's physical, but there is a large, large, like, nuance and theme there that suggests that it is not just a physical resuscitation, but a spiritual one. Ephesians 2 says, for once you were dead in your transgressions, not sickly, not dying, but dead in your transgressions. But interestingly enough, the answer to resuscitation of the spirit is not alone, but it is in the presence of God's people. Now that's not always the case. And I'm not, I'm not trying to do a sweeping generalization or even put a damper or put bounds on how God the Spirit can move. I believe that God can do whatever He wanted, whether we are with people and without. But God tends to, not necessarily saying that this is a causative trend, but it is a correlative trend, that God tends to not just use supernatural occurrences, but He tends to use His people as His hands and feet. And it's not just a touch, but it is an embrace where life is shared. And that life, although here it might seem like it's just a resuscitation, that life is not just your heart beating again. It is so much more than that. It is not bought by your holiness. It is not your fixing of behavior that leads for, leads to you being spiritually awakened again. It is the grace of God in the presence of the body of Christ. Church, you gotta hear me when I say it is the grace of God that resuscitates us in the presence of other believers. This boy, weary by the world, was at the right place, but did the wrong thing, and ends up falling, falling too far, and dies. He dies. But he, even in his death, even in his induced spiritual mental slumber, was not too far from the grace of God given to him through a vessel where the glory of God is magnified and this boy comes back to life renewed alive again 
raised to life by Paul? No, by God. A God who loved him, a God who died for him before he was born. See, the unexpected grace of God had Paul go on a detour. Had Paul not been ambushed, had Paul's life not been threatened, he would not have met like that. And yet, in these perilous circumstances, a boy is reborn. What can you take away from this? The first thing you can take away is that fellowship is extremely important to the life of the believers. Your life was not meant to be lived alone. If you genuinely feel like you don't need anybody else, spiritually and emotionally and mentally, you are lying to yourself. Because the God who created you did not create you for that. Pre-fall, it was not good for man to be alone. So what makes you think now in 2020 that it is good for you to be alone? Even Paul did team ministry together. Even serving God is not meant to be alone. Paul was not experiencing perilous persecution on his own. He was covered by a band of brothers that he was discipling, but were also supporting him. We are the body of Christ. We, not you, we are the body of Christ. We can move together. We can do this together. So that's the first thing you can take away. If you are struggling right now spiritually, my question to you is who are you talking to? And what y'all talking about? Because like I said, sports, hobbies alone are not fellowship they're a good way to start fellowshipping but if it ends there it ceases to be fellowship who is walking with you we can apply the fact that Jews versus Eutychus The Jews here that almost ambushed Paul versus Eutychus. The way of the world leads to death. But in Christ, in our God, who in all things works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28, in Christ, resurrection life is shared. One really important way to discern. If you're being overburdened, is if your current lifestyle is sapping the life out of you. If you wake up feeling tired, in Christ, resurrection life is shared. 12 hour service is exhausting, but they left with joy and comfort. 
it is not sitting. I love to just sit in my bed and look at my phone. I love it. I love it. I just like try my best not to move to conserve my energy. But that is not rest. Rest is when you lay down your burden. Rest is when you find peace in the comfort of God. Rest is when you lay down your yoke and you take on his yoke. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. When you are relieved of burden and you are rejuvenated in rest, it's not in being apathetic, it's not in being lethargic, it's in Christ. That's when rest is life-giving. God, God came from my life with that. Um, but the last thing, and the, possibly one of the more important things to take away, is this story of Eutychus. If you feel like Eutychus today, if you feel like in the midst of quarantine or in the midst of the circumstances of your life, you have fallen asleep and fallen too far, this is God's grace for you today. Acts 20 was coming today since April, y'all. And I was not me. I am just preaching through a book. If this is what you needed to hear today, that's because God loves you. It's not because Jane knows you. It's because God loves you. Because the reality is, is that I'm a human being and I don't know what you're going through. But God does. If you feel like you have fallen asleep in this time of quarantine, if you feel like you have fallen or you are weary and you about to jump off without even realizing it, this is God's grace for you today. Wake up! As we share life, allow His grace to meet you in this moment. Receive the grace of God for you in this moment. Receive the love of God for you in this moment. The call to wake up is a call. Receive God's call for your own heart. God does not force you. He does not shove life down your throat. And if you feel like you are on the end of the believers, take the example of Paul seriously. If there is somebody next to you who is spiritually falling asleep and you can see it, know that God does not just work through wonders, but he works through you. And all power and authority on heaven and on earth has been given to you. We talked about this last week. Don't fall for the lie that you need Jango or you need a pastor for, for the power of Christ to be within you. You are a son, a daughter of God. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to you. The Holy Spirit is inside you right now. Maybe that person needs an embrace. And not just a regular embrace. An exchange of life.
community is a vehicle of new life. And last but not least, the, one of the most lovely, loving things that you can take away from today is that God's word is for you. Whether or not you're listening attentively, whether or not you've fallen asleep, whether or not you're weary or rejoicing, whether or not you're mourning or in gladness, whether or not you are complaining or in thanksgiving, God's word and his grace will meet you exactly where you are. Be strengthened and comforted by God's glory for you today. Lean into your community. You can never fall too far from the grace of eternal life with God and with his people. And God loves you very much. Romans 5, 8. For God demonstrated his love in that while we were still, still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you while you were still enemies with God. And that is a demonstration of not just his kindness, of not just his salvation, not just his grace, his love for you. And you can never too far, too fall from the grace of eternal life with God. I feel really compelled to read this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God, God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor heights, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was not the point of miracle that astounded the believers, but the presence of God's relentless love for you that comforts us that leads us, helps us to remember his love. He loves you even if you have a hard time receiving him. Nothing can separate you from his love. Let's take this time to pray. Are you Eutychus? Are you Eutychus is friends. Are you Eutychus when he's fallen or are you Eutychus when he's asleep? Are you Paul when God completely, when when life and, and a, a, a strike of distress leads Paul's life and his plans to be completely interrupted 
What do you relate to this morning? How is God's grace meeting you this morning? Would you just take, even if, whether or not you are comfortable, would you just take this moment to just lift a couple of sentences even up to God to just receive this for yourself. Let's take this time to pray. From wherever you are listening, we hope you were blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.